Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by a repeat guest, the eminent Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who you probably recognize as a senior research scientist at MIT. Uh, she has a of expertise in computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory. And she's, and she also has a degree in biophysics, all from MIT and, and actually electrical engineering too. Right. Uh, yeah, you're, you have quite the breadth of training. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and obviously in MIT is one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Unfortunately, they, I mean, especially 20, 30 years ago when you were getting your training, but they somewhat have degenerated into progressivism and I think deteriorated, relatively speaking. But, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, you, your training is impeccable and your mind is phenomenal and you committed much of this brain power to helping understand some of the challenges we have in biology, which is a bit far, a bit unrelated to some of your initial train, uh, fields of expertise, but nevertheless, I mean, once you learn how to learn, as you clearly did, you can easily apply this. I mean, that's the beauty. We're all on this lifelong journey of understanding our reality, and you're really facilitating the journey for many of us by helping us uncover some of the deep science at, at a molecular biology level. And today, we're going to be looking at the influence of glyphosate and a molecule called deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen. And we'll talk about more about that. But before we go deep into that, I, I'd like to get an, you, you know, you're pretty well known for your science on glyphosate. And um, so I think we could maybe start with getting an update on where glyphosate is, especially with the changes in Monsanto being bought by Bayer and and shifting all that and the lawsuits that have been involved. So there's a lot happened since we last talked about this. And I'm wondering if you can just provide us from your perspective with a brief update on where we stand with glyphosate. Right. I'm actually quite excited because I've seen many um, uh, papers coming out in the last few years, even the last two years, um, studying glyphosate and even very low levels of glyphosate and finding toxicity where before they hadn't bothered to look because we were assured it was safe and it was wasting your money studying something that's safe. I think people were not studying it and that's why they weren't finding things. So there's really papers coming out left and right lately. So there was a, um, a recent paper on endocrine disruption, a re review paper of, of glyphosate linking it to endocrine, endocrine disruption, uh, which can link to things like breast cancer and uh, reproductive issues and obesity and uh, thyroid issues. All of these things are connected to endocrine problems and um, there was just a huge list of references and a huge list of reasons, ways in which glyphosate is shown to be an endocrine disruptor in that paper. And of course, there's this, all these lawsuits that have come up recently, thousands of them. Did um, they, did they, I think they settled it. Uh, yeah, it's hard but, to figure out. Yeah. 
And it's it wasn't so, wasn't that much. I mean, it, the viability was in the hundreds of billions. I know, I know. If they did settle it, it was a it was a total ripoff for the people who. Yeah, were, absolutely. Um, the only one that win are the lawyers. Right. <laughs> it could be a new, I think it was a two billion award, a jury I, award, on the one of the one of the first. Right. Few. There was two billion for one. There were three of them that got huge amounts in the first award, and then of course it got shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, and they they had various um, higher court appeals, and it's still going on. I think. The very first one, I'm not sure he's even gotten his money yet. And of course, the money he's getting is a lot less than what was originally awarded with, from the jury, which is what always happens, apparently, with these cases. It's such a huge effort to be the first person, the pioneer who finally breaks that barrier. But I am so in admiration of Dwayne Johnson, who, you know, had uh, caught, gotten on Hodgkin's lymphoma in his 40s. And um, I met him in person. He's such a great person. And he was just he, willing to go through all of this. Is he still alive? He is. Yes. Okay, and he's good, got good. young kids. Um, and he's, I think he's still waiting for his money and I, money keeps yeah. shrinking if they go through the process, but uh, it's really frustrating. But so the cancer thing too, you know, there's a new, uh, new paper that came out that showed the glyphosate causes, uh, sensitizes the cells to be more receptive to cancer in exposure to other chemicals. And that's what I'm seeing with glyphosate in a lot of cases. Glyphosate almost makes everything else more toxic than it would otherwise be. You know, it disrupts your, your defense system against toxic chemicals. And then there was uh, were papers, several papers that just remarkable papers where they exposed rats to low dose glyphosate uh, when they were pregnant. And then they, and low dose, so the rats didn't even notice it. I mean, there wasn't any obvious damage to the rats and there wasn't any obvious damage to their offspring from that pregnancy. But when those offspring grew up and when they had pups and then they had grew up and had, so you got into the grandchildren, you know, the grand pups. <laughs> started to have really big problems as a consequence of that exposure of their grandmother or even their great grandmother. So it's this epigenetic effect that goes through generations where the germline is especially susceptible to damage that's gonna show up in later generations. That is so remarkable. Yeah, so I was actually looking more for um, an update on the use and the sale of it and some of those, but before you answer that, I just wanted to comment on your attire because we're reporting this in the middle of winter and they're wondering, whoa, why is she <laughs> a shirt there? Well, you're in Kauai. Yes. Uh, so, and actually you mentioned to me earlier before we started that this is, not, this is now your full-time residence. I mean, yes, I'm not there the entire year, but most of the year you officially yes. shifted. So congratulations because you're getting vitamin D on steroids out there. Yeah, that's right. I certainly am. And I'm so grateful for that because fourfold increased risk of dying from COVID if you've got low vitamin D. Yeah, yeah. I actually had my first paper published and you know, went over all congratulations. that. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm the first paper published this century. <laughs> yeah, published the <laughs> last century. Yeah. But you've got, I think you've published 30 papers since 2011 yeah. or 12. More than 30 now. It's oh, more, more than 30. That's Yeah. Cool. But I'm kind of slowing down on the publishing because I think I'm going more towards the idea of uh, writing directly to the public uh, web page articles. I think that's more productive, actually. Yeah. When you when you submit your journals, I mean, your uh, your studies to the journals for review, how many times do you get kicked back for rejections? You know, or I even get, I get kicked back um, without review. That They'll say that the the topic of the paper is inappropriate. Oh. <laughs> it's shocking, really. And of course, the topic is inappropriate because they've got, you know, funding from people who will be very upset if they publish that paper. They won't even let it go under review. So it's been very frustrating, actually. Wow. I was quite surprised when I first got into this area. I should have known better, but, <laughs> you know, the vaccines are such a hot button. There's tremendous uh, frustration and censorship and go involved in trying to get something 
That's why the papers that show the evidence that vaccines cause harm are typically in you know, yeah. open access journals because the mainstream journals won't go near it. You know, yeah, just contradict the mainstream narrative. So uh, when you've written a paper and it's rejected without even reviewing it, do what's the process for you? Do you submit it to other journals? Uh, yeah, so in fact, I had one that was extremely interesting. Um, really, like, really, really obvious evidence of me being censored because I had been solicited to write a paper. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I, my friend had also been solicited. So we, we buddied up and we wrote a paper. We thought it was really good. And um, so we, we submitted the paper. And um, and then it was shortly after we submitted it, it got rejected. And um, we were shocked. You know, without I think it was without review, rejected without review. We were really shocked. So we approached the guy. It was a special issue. And we approached the guy, you know, to say, well, what happened here? We thought, you know, you wanted this paper. We thought it was exactly, exactly what you had in mind. And he said, I didn't know it was rejected. I didn't know it. So it got rejected upstairs, I think. And that's the only thing we can figure out. Yeah. And he couldn't fight for it. So so we submitted to another journal. We got it published and it's got been very well received. So uh, it was a good paper. It is a good paper. So eventually all all of your papers get published. It's just a matter of which journal it is. Not necessarily. I had another one that was total torture. (laughs) This was many years ago and it was on statin drugs. And I was linking statin drugs to the defects, uh, to the problems we're seeing in middle-aged men, actually, because I think that we did a study on statin drug side effects. Again, I thought it was an ex- you know, really interesting what we found in the, in the evidence from the data. And uh, it was going through process pretty well. We'd had three reviews. It looked like we were going to be able to you know, deal with it. And then we submitted our response to those reviews. And then a fourth reviewer appeared out of nowhere and hated the paper, absolutely refused to give us any, any chance to. We finally even answered to his, all his complaints. He had a huge you know, response. Mm-hmm. We dealt with all of that. We tried. And then ultimately, they rejected it. So this person, whoever it was, was, I think, brought in because they couldn't allow yeah. a paper damaging to statin drugs to be published. You know, so there's a huge amount going on. It's really frustrating to publish papers. Yeah, you know, When you the, are going against the mainstream, it's just right. almost impossible to publish yeah, it, papers. Thanks for taking that tangent. It's not related to our primary discussion, but I think the public would be interested in hearing the inside story of people who do write studies for peer-reviewed journals. Uh, and the, the, the process, of, especially if you're contradicting the mainstream narrative so kudos for persistence you know i just got a taste of it recently late last year with I mean, it wasn't rejected we submitted it to nutrients it's a pretty decent journal uh but i mean we got four not projections i guess feedbacks from the reviewers that oh, it was unacceptable unless you make these changes and we did we did that process four or five times before they finally accepted it. Yeah, I mean, I had another paper that I wrote on Alzheimer's and again, I linked it to statin drugs and um, they basically said, you know, unless you take the part out about statins, we will not accept this paper. (laughs) So we took it out, you know, and then they published it. I mean, thankfully they published it, but we didn't mention statin drugs. All right, well, let's get back. So it's it's really an interesting world right now, I'll tell you. Yeah, let's get back to glyphosate. and, And if you could, Briefly summarize where we're at. I mean, are we are they selling as much glyphosate? Are we still using as much? As has the transition to Bear being the the owner of Monsanto, Monsanto not existing, sort of rebranding, has that changed the uh, use? Is it has the PR from these cases uh, had an impact on lowering the, the use of uh, glyphosate? You know, I think there's interesting things happening, and I'm really um, encouraged, actually. And part of it, of course, is all a lot of it is public awareness, and then um, pressure from the public. And then you have companies that 
realize they might they might get sued if they sell glyphosate. So you have major marketing companies that sell lots of Roundup products who are deciding to stop selling it because they're afraid of lawsuits. So again, it's you know pressure from the from the consumer going back to the companies that sell it, and then um, and then as you get more and more consumer awareness, we're also getting a lot more uh, availability of organic food. You're seeing certified organic uh, more and more in the regular grocery stores. It doesn't have to be one of these expensive boutique grocery stores to get the certified organic. So that's really blossoming. And the certified organic is selling like hotcakes, you know. So again, it's public awareness, I think, is the key. And then you have all these lawsuits. I mean, those, those three lawsuits were just phenomenal to really bring, again, bring public awareness to the problems and also to... Um, to get all a whole bunch more people to, to, to try to do lawsuits. So we have like tens of thousands, I think, now, lawsuits on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then, um, and then uh, Bayer, too, being no longer in the United States, I think they have less control over what's happening in the United States. I think Monsanto was extremely good at fighting, um, you know, powerful lawyers to defend their product. And so people were, Monsanto had assured Bayer that they had never lost a lawsuit on, on glyphosate. And then as soon as Bayer took over, they started losing. So I think there was something going on there that uh, is no longer going on, which makes it more accessible to lawyers to take on a case and to feel emboldened that they might actually win. Yeah, there were some really clever attorneys that uh, were able to do some magnificent work and win those win those cases and, and you know, put, really put Bear and Monsanto back on their heels. I mean, I thought they it looked like they might even stood a chance of going out of business. I, I mean, if, if the suits were successfully litigated, but you know, it always seems to be the case. You have these atroc atrocious, egregious behavior, corporate behaviors that they they literally should go out of business for the damage that they done, uh, they did, and if they rewarded appropriately and the first three law cases, the suits, as you suggested, I mean, they, they were huge victories, but then there's this massive travesty of justice and the lawyers wind up negotiating this out and the, the, and the, the class action uh, contribute or contributors or constituents are, are, are minimized and they hardly get anything for, for the massive pain, suffering and loss of life that uh, as a result of using these products, which were fraudulently brought to the market. Right, and as I understood it, they were trying to put to put into that plan, that negotiation for that deal was that something about having a committee to decide forevermore that glyphosate, whether or not glyphosate causes cancer, to have a decisive study in which the committee would decide. And that was so dangerous because they could of course stack the committee with their friends and decide that it doesn't cause cancer forevermore, and then nobody can ever sue them for cancer and Roundup again, which would have been horrendous. But I think they, they fought that, and that didn't happen, as far as I understand. It's a little bit hard to keep up on it, a little bit yeah, unsure yeah. what to believe. But it, I think maybe that part got omitted in the final deal. That's good. So thanks for the uh, up update on glyphosate. And you're, you uh, ventured into uh, investigating some of its associations with other other areas. And I mentioned we we're talking about deuterium. So before we go into that, and maybe before, before we even do that, why don't we, you, you briefly review the mechanism of action with glyphosate, uh, which relates to glycine. And many people have heard this before, but I think it's always good to review it. And glycine, of course, is an amino acid. There's 20 of them. Uh, and 
the uh, gly and glyphosate comes from glycine. <laughs> and it's a really simple molecule, which is one amino acid, but it's got these uh, phos phosphonates or uh, was it, what, what is this? That's right, methylphosphonate. Methylphosphonate, that's what it was, a methylphosphonate, it was methyl I was leaving out. The methylphosphonate's around there, which makes it poisonous. And you believe, and I think largely from initially catalyzed by Anthony Samsell, who I introduced you to. <laughs> I know, I always tell people that. So it's so, I mean, it all, it all worked out. It's so neat to think back to that time because I, I heard that talk by um, Don Huber just a few days. I went there, did, did my talk on statins. He did his talk on glyphosate, which I didn't know what glyphosate was at that time. This is like 2012. And I listened to that talk and I was like, wow, this is it. I mean, I was convinced this is what's causing the autism epidemic. I was so certain. And I've been looking all over the vaccines and I think the vaccines are contributing, but I think that glyphosate's primary with the autism epidemic. And I, uh, and then I came to you shortly after that and you introduced me to Anthony and then we just wrote those six papers together. It's been yeah, quite yeah. a collaboration. Yeah, so it's still not well accepted and relatively controversial of uh, the substitution of glycine as an amino acid for the real amino, uh, uh, glyphosate for gl the real amino acid glycine into the uh, machinery for creating proteins. Uh, and then obviously if you have a distorted analog of glycine, it's not going to, that constructed protein is not going to work like it's designed to. And the primary exactly. example of that is a shikimate sh pathway. Uh, yes. So which you so cleverly have exposed. So why don't you review that some more? <laughs> yeah, and I just want to say that I have a book now that I've pretty much finished. It's off to the publisher now, and they're preparing it in the final process. It should come out in June 2021. Okay, good. We'll have you on for that, too. Just send me a draft of that. So yeah, gonna... Toxic Legacy, it's called, how the herbicide glyphosate is destroying our health and the ecosystem. So I have a whole chapter there on the glycine analog story, and then I follow it with a chapter on the specific set of amino acids, of proteins that are especially susceptible because of a particular what I call glyphosate susceptible motif. So it's fascinating, really fascinating biology and so terrifying when you think of the consequences, the potential consequences, if I'm right. And it matches so well with all the diseases that are going up dramatically uh, in our society that I really think I'm onto something huge here. And I hope that book will be well received. I, I'm getting really strong pushback. People are saying it's not possible, but when I look at the evidence- Who's keeping you pushback? I mean, the chemists are saying, you know, oh, they, don't, okay. they don't tell tell me. I have pe friends who believe it, obviously Anthony, but even chemists who believe it, a Harvard uh, PhD who believes it. I mean, it's not like nobody believes this, but there are few, there are few and far between. Most people are being told that it's not possible, and therefore we don't even consider it. But when you look at the evidence, it's I think the evidence is overwhelming, and it's Monsanto's own evidence that's overwhelming, and it particularly a striking part of that evidence has to do with EPSP synthase because that's the enzyme yeah. in the it, pathway. It, it is, let me just inter interject its quick tangent because a lot of that evidence came directly from SAMHSA where I, I don't know how he did it, but he was able to capture like thousands of their internal correspondence and he I know. Absolutely. exposed that, that information from their own files. He's, he is really, I mean, he's really something. I admire his tenacity, you know, and he just won't give up. And he managed to convince the EPA. And it was a nice story because the, he'd been pestering them. I need, I need I, you know, Freedom of Information Act. And uh, they, they finally sent him Monsanto and said, if you don't respond within three months, I'm going to get, we're going to make you give him all this stuff. And they, they waited three months and didn't respond. And that's how it ended up that he got it. But they had to, he, they made him sign something that said he couldn't show it to anybody. He could report what he found in it, 
in papers, but he couldn't see, let anybody else see all those that stuff, which is quite remarkable. And also it's not searchable. So it really requires sitting and, and, and pouring wow. over data. It's not searchable. So that's just, I what mean, they, it's amazing. Was that, was that like a, a software hack so they couldn't make it? Was there, I bet there's a workaround for that. Yeah, there could be. I don't know whether, I actually don't even know whether it was physical documents or whether it's, you know, like if you have a PDF, it's like documents. a picture. Yeah, there may be a way to. Or, but, yeah, yeah, I know. It was probably an image. They gave them an image. So yeah, it's probably images, I suspect, which it makes it hard. I mean, maybe you could run, a, run it through a character recognition. But anyway, he's just been rummaging through it and finding extraordinary stories from there, including the one about the bluegill sunfish, which we published. We described that. Uh, in our paper, the bluegill sunfish was quite remarkable because they exposed these bluegill sunfish to radio-labeled glyphosate so they could track it. They knew the glyphosate was there, or at least something from the glyphosate was there because of the radio-label. And then they looked at the tissues of the bluegill sunfish, and sure enough, the radio-label was in the tissues. Now, they've said that glyphosate doesn't accumulate in the tissues. Well, there it was, right, in the tissues. So then they said, well, let's measure glyphosate in those same tissues, and they came up short, like 20% of the radio label up to 20% was accountable through the technique that you would use to see if glyphosate's there. So 80% went missing. So then they got the brilliant idea of adding uh, enzymes that break proteins down into individual amino acids. And once they did that, the yield increased to 80%. So they got another 60% of the glyphosate identified as a physical glyphosate molecule once they broke down the proteins into individual amino acids. And they said in the, in the Which, paper- which were these? Which proteins were these? So you're these just, were just proteins in the tissue. So they had the tissue. Oh wow! So that's evidence. Proteins that the, the actual glyphosate gets integrated into the protein structure. Is, is, well, that's what that sure looks like. And they even said mm -hmm. that they said perhaps it was incorporated into the protein. That's their words. Wow. And it's Monsanto researchers, and this is like <laughs> 1980s. <laughs> so you know that's pretty damning, I think. Yeah. And then the, the EPSP synthase is also a remarkable story because there's a glycine residue at the place where EPSP synthase yeah. binds to phosphate in, EP, in PEP, phosphoenopyruvate. And that's a long, complex uh, biomedical term. So what does this enzyme do? Is this the one that is responsible for making the, the uh, mm -hmm. uh, not the branch chain, the aromatic aromatic amino okay. acids, you know? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's a critical uh, enzyme in the process in the, in the shikimate pathway, which is the pathway that produces the aromatic amino acids. And those aromatics are essential to us because we don't have that pathway. The argument is we're, we're not susceptible to glyphosate because we don't have that pathway. But our gut microbes do have that pathway and they use it to make those essential amino acids for the host. So we become deficient when they can't do it and they become damaged, they become killed and then you get an imbalance in your gut microbiome. So lots of things happen that are bad in the gut because of Glyphosate disrupting that enzyme in the in the microbes, right? Yeah, so we'll we'll probably go in more depth when I interview you next for your new book coming out, which I'm excited to review. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell me about your journey uh, with integrating this this passion of glyphosate in, into deuterium? <laughs> That's an amazing before you story. do that, let's, why don't you take another tangent and let, let's tell everyone what deuterium. <laughs> Yeah, first of all, I would say that, in fact, that paper that I mentioned that I published together with Greg Nye that got rejected in that weird way, and then it got later published, it was because of that paper that Laszlo Burroughs reached out to me. He found that paper, he liked it, and he sent me a note and said, you know, gee, great paper. 
by the way, deuterium. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, deuterium? Oh, I, I, yeah, I know what deuterium is, but I knew nothing about its well, role in health. I knew nothing. Well, yeah, for some, some people who are deuterium advocates and passionate about it, they know who Boros is. So tell us who Boros is. Yeah, well, he's a professor at UCLA and pediatric, I think in pediatric oncology, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly pediatrics, uh, kind of a controversial fellow, I suppose. Yeah, and he's actually very outspoken. <laughs> he's not exactly mainstream, right? <laughs> but he comes from Hungary and he went to school there at the St. George, I never know how to pronounce that name, St. George Institute. You know, he went to the place, St. George was famous for really, really phenomenal re research in biology and biophysics. Uh, many, many years ago, and uh, the Institute's named after him. And, and uh, deuterium research is really concentrated in Hungary, Russia, and the Ukraine, which is quite interesting. The United States, we hardly know anything about deuterium. You know, people aren't paying attention, except for those, you know, your, some of your friends that are promoting deuterium depleted water. There's, a, there's an interest in the natural uh, naturopath community of possibility of using deuterium depleted water as a as a supplement to help uh, solve the deuterium problem, as you well know. <laughs> so, um, so we have an interest growing in that respect. And I think then American researchers are starting, some of them are starting to pay attention. I was blown away and I immediately saw the connection to glyphosate, which is why I got so excited about this. And this was a year ago, December. Um, and I've just been reading everything I can on deuterium since then and hooking it to glyphosate. It's just, it's just uh, astonishing actually what I found and even ultimately to COVID-19. So it's been quite a year for me in terms of what I would call research, major research breakthroughs in my understanding of how metabolism works and how it's getting messed up by glyphosate and then how that's causing us to not be able to um, effectively deal with COVID-19. So it's, it's an amazing story. Okay, so perhaps it would be best to start with how in, in normal physiology in our cells, uh, specifically the mitochondria, uh, function to actually deplete our body of deuterium. They're little deuterium depleting organelles. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just, if they're healthy, if, if they're do, doing well and have a good diet and you know they're not dysfunctional mitochondria, then obviously if they're dysfunctional, they're not gonna be able to complete that task well. So that pro why don't you describe that process because it's important to understand that before you understand how deuterium works and yeah. that interferes with it and then and you have to know that before you understand how glyphosate impacts that process. Right, and it's all, it's all really fascinating and it gets into biophysics as well and also gets into structured water. So it's, it all fits together. All these uh, areas that I'd been interested in and had done deep dives into in previous uh, periods of time, they're all kind of coming together in this great uh, confluence of ideas that is uh, really um, break, breakthrough. I feel it's, it's uh, I feel it, I mean, I don't want to be too, well, revolutionary might be the word that would come to mind <laughs> in terms of understanding biology. And, um, and so the thing is that the deuterium actually is a bit like iron. You know, iron is both toxic and deficient at the same time when you have glyphosate messing it up. And in fact, manganese also, I think these minerals, these plus two cations are affected by glyphosate in such a way that the body's natural mechanisms for getting them to where they need to be and making them be effective in what they can do gets messed up. So they become toxic. Iron is toxic if it's um, not controlled properly, you know, and you had all these uh, machinery to help to keep the iron safe and then to put the iron where it needs to be so it can help the uh, enzyme do its job. And all of that works beautifully as long as you don't have something like glyphosate in the way. And it's very similar with deuterium. Deuterium um, 
the way I understand it is that deuterium actually gets trapped in the structured water because it, uh, it has, so deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It has an extra um, neutron as well as the proton and electron. Hi hydrogen is the smallest atom. It's the upper left corner of the periodic chart. And uh, hydrogen is actually by, by far the most common uh, atom in our body. It's something like 99% of, of, um, of the atoms in our body are hydrogen atoms. I believe that's right. And mm -hmm. by, by weight, it comes out less because hydrogen is so tiny. It's like maybe 70%. Or sixty something. So it's it's amazing how much hydrogen we have in our body and how important hydrogen is for our well-being. Fundamental law molecule or atom of the universe. Right, right. Molecule. Yeah. It's got two of them put together. Right, yeah. hydrogen H two. Yeah, the gas. Um, and the gas is also, of course, very uh, interesting because that can become therapeutic as well. And that's mm -hmm. also because the deuterium. So the deuterium tends to stick to things. It has a stronger bond when it binds to things. And then, pro so the protons, so when the structured water actually releases protons, that's something that uh, Gary, Ger Gerald Pollack showed to the world. You know, the whole idea of um, the structured water pushing protons out, you're looking puzzled. I don't, I don't remember that as part of the, one of the benefits of structured water. So can you review that more? I just, I'm, I'm astounded. Fascinating. Actually, it's an important part because it, it's the energy supply of the, of the cell because they- Oh, that's how, that's how the energy gets transmitted by by uh, pushing out the protons. Yes, it's negatively charged. So the structured water is negatively charged because it forms this uh, water, these water circles that lose one hydrogen and they're stable. They're like a molecule, a, a super water molecule made out of water molecules in a, in a circle, like six of them with, with missing one hydrogen. And that's a stable um, structure. Mm -hmm. And that hydrogen gets released and then it gets pushed out. And so the whole thing creates a battery at the place where it has interfaces with the fluid water. So it's, a, it's gelled water and then protons being pushed out into the fluid water. And then the fluid water protons are then ushered, I think they're ushered into the cell alongside of skeletal pathways to be delivered to the mitochondria. So that's an important, I suspect mm -hmm. that's an important way to get um, deuterium depleted protons into the mitochondrial intermembrane space. So is that, is that, transfer of energy through the release of the protons from the structured water help increase mitochondrial energy production? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I'm right, and this is all, you know, speculative, theoretical, whatever you want to call it, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me. And it's part of how I'm figuring out the story when I read the papers and I can link it all together, but it's a, uh, it's really, really interesting. And so you're basically, the cell has all this structured water around it, which it's maintaining with its sulfates. So the mm -hmm. sulfate becomes critical. Sulfate gets messed up by glyphosate. So when you don't have enough structured water, you don't have a strong enough battery, you don't have enough protons to deliver to the mitochondrial intermembrane space. And that makes the mitochondria have to work that much harder to do their job. Now they have their own mechanism to push the protons across the membrane, as you know. You know, the mitochondria have this membrane that has a part inside the membrane that's really, really important. And yeah. that's where you have those protons and you really, really don't want it to be deuterons. And this is what uh, Laszlo brought home to me well, but before we go to there, I just want to back up a little bit with the structured water because I'm still kind of fascinated with that concept. And, you know, my understanding of one of the primary mechanisms that structured water is created is through the introduction of additional energy sources like light and infrared. Yes. And so does it, so if you've shining the infrared light, which you're getting plenty of in Kauai, by the way. I know. I love uh, infrared. <laughs> and you, you suck it up with your body so that infrared goes in and penetrates the, your body and uh, 
uh, I guess hits the structured water, and because of that energy, it's just translated in, into the structure, and that powers the ability of the structured water to release the proton. You're exactly right. It actually in, in paper that I read that um, that um, <laughs> Gerald Pollock published a paper together with co-authors that said that they, they experimentally that when you show when you expose he they build these sort of artificial you know structured water place things with this. Uh, molecule that they have that they work with and when you shine um, infrared light on it the the structured water space expands by a factor of four wow factor of four so you're making wow. a much stronger battery you're turning that light energy into useful battery energy for the cell and mobilizing those protons and then those protons are going to be pushed into the mitochondrial intermembrane and by the way i think in the mitochondrial intermembrane space and also into the lysosomes so the lysosomes are another um, very susceptible um, uh, organelle inside the cells where the uh, things are broken down. And both the mitochondria and the lysosomes get sick in, mm -hmm. in many, many diseases. Is, is the mechanism the same in the lysosomes? They have also have mitochondria which benefit from the protons? Uh, they are, uh, lysosomes are individual organelles that are highly acidic. They, they, they make themselves very, very acidic, uh, very, lots and lots of protons inside in order to be able to break oh, down. No mitochondria is broken. Hmm? They, they don't have mitochondria. They don't have mitochondria. No, they're independent of the mitochondria. There are, other, there are other organelles inside the cell, the lysosomes. That's the cell's digestive system. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, so they bring in stuff that's, you know, damaged molecules, for example, oxidized glycated, you know, proteins and whatnot. And they break them down into individual um, smaller units, and then they can use them as, but they they're basically turning it into food. They suck up the protons to, to assist in this process. Yeah, they have to make themselves extremely acidic. They're the most acidic organelles inside the, um, inside the uh, by far, actually, inside the cell. They have mm. to be very acidic in order to be able to do it. And they also sweep up heparin sulfate inside the, uh, in, inside the lysosome. And that also helps them with the digestion. It works with iron to uh, help to break down. So they need the hep heparin sulfate is what maintains the structured water. Yes, yeah, so it also is important for the lysosomes. I thought it was connected with the structured water that happens often. Yes, it, it's, it's really what's crucial for the structured water. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating. I never realized the, the, me, the mechanism of how the structured water transfers the energy into the body, but it makes perfect sense now. So there's two routes, the lysosomes and the mitochondria. Yeah, so they both need, that, uh, need those protons and they get them, I think, through the... Um, and that's also fascinating because the water, uh, the water along the cytoskeletal wires Mm -hmm. is fluid water. That's because the, the cytoskeleton is made up of this F-actin, um, F-actin filaments, and those filaments are unusual proteins that actually destructure the water around them. Most proteins make mm -hmm. the water around them structured water. Many proteins do, but F-actin is very special that able to make it fluid water um, around the F-actin fibers. And um, Enos, you know, Enos makes nitric oxide, right? It's very famous for that. But Enos, there's many types of nitrogen oxide synthesized, but Enos is the good one. There's Inos and Enos. Enos. Right, right, right. Yeah, Inos is the inducible one that can yeah, that's a bad play guy. a role in inflammation. But Enos makes nitric oxide, but people don't realize that for every molecule of nitric oxide that it makes, it makes two molecules of water. And those molecules mm -hmm. of water are deuterium depleted. And it hooks onto the cytoskeletal. Uh, wires to make that water. So what you know, nitric oxide may just be a signal. Hey, I've made some deuterium depleted water. No. <laughs> you know, you think of some of these, uh, you know, like, and then you get into the lipids and all the different 
nasty lipids that are that cause ox, you know, inflammatory response. You know about those, I'm sure. The leukotrienes and the thromboxane, you know, all these uh, nasty lipids that are oxidation products of um, arachidonic acid, for example. Those guys are signaling molecules. Too, metabolite, so, that's a metabolite of linoleic acid. That's one of my new patients. Right. No, that's right. Linoleic goes to arachidonic, goes to then these leukotrienes that can cause uh, all kinds of trouble with respect to inducing inflammation. And, um, and that is also a technique to produce deuterium depleted water. When, mm -hmm. you look at, when, you, when you look at all of these things in, from the standpoint of deuterium, you basically say, oh my God, this is so interesting because it, it explains all these things that go on. You know, we understand that inflammation is associated with all these diseases, you know, huge list of diseases that are associated with inflammation. And we're trying to find drugs that are gonna reduce the inflammation. You're always looking for something that can tame the inflammation. The inflammation is there for a good reason. And the reason is to produce deuterium depleted water. Mm. And it's so fascinating. And, and, and uh, it, it's just, and so it's all because the mitochondria are failing in their task of producing mm. their own deuterium depleted water, which they get in part through the structured water from the sulfates, but maybe in large part through a whole bunch of enzymes that are highly skilled of putting, choosing hydrogen over deuterium in their product. So there are all these enzymes that are, many of them are in the mitochondria that produce deuterium depleted water as a product or that produce something that carries a deuterium depleted proton, a proton that's very unlikely to be deuterium. And, mm -hmm. and it's all related to NADH, NADPH, FAD, FM, and all these um, flavonoids. Let's stop there because I th I'm confused. I, what the, my understanding of the production of deuterium depleted water in the mitochondria relates to just the normal metabolism in the uh, in oxidative, uh, citric acid. Citric, it's a Krebs citric acid cycle, but there's uh, oxidative, oxidative phosphorylation. So when the transfer of the electrons through the comp of different complexes, the five complexes, and this yes. is the normal metabolism. Part of that is ultimately releases this water, but the water's pure, it's deuterium depleted. It's, there's no, yes. and, no and the question is, why is it deuterium depleted? And that's because there are many, many enzymes that are very, very good at making sure it's not deuterium, that it's protons and not deuterium. Okay. So that's the, that's the, those are the details. That's like FAD. Yeah, and, right. And NADH, I mean, NADH and NADPH are so fascinating. I've been chasing them through all the proteins. You know, they're so, so interesting because those guys are the carriers of that wonderful hydrogen that's not deuterium, mm -hmm. NAD and NADP. And they're constantly moving back with H, not H, you know, in all these different reactions. And when you trace who's doing what, where, you realize that the cytoplasm is producing NADH and handing it over to the mitochondria. And then the mitochondria are taking that H off and throwing it into the intermembrane space. So the whole process ends up with the intermembrane space being assured that this is H and not D, which is crucial because then those protons, once they build up, they come back through those ATPase pumps and if they're deuterons, they're going to wreck the pump. And that's the whole thing that Laszlo taught me. The deuteron, yeah. the pump hates the deuterons. They destroy the pump. And of course, then you can't make ATP. You release reactive oxygen species and yeah. you break it. So it's Let's just take a little big step there just to amplify what you're saying. So that pump is cytochrome 5, ATP synthase, which is uh, like a mini motor. It's a, it's a mechanical motor, actually. Yeah, it's so cool, isn't it? It's yeah. so, so interesting. Where these, if the hydrogen... Uh, atom comes through, not deuterium, but the hydrogen atom with one neutron comes through, it works flawlessly and generates the ATP, it spits out one ATP. But if you've got a deuterium atom with two neutrons, twice as big, it like destroys that mini motor. 
Yeah, it's actually one neutron and one proton in the deuterium, and oh, it's I'm sorry. just one proton in the hydrogen. It's, okay, I got it. You're sorry, close. Got it. You're close. Yeah. <laughs> it's twice the weight because they Part both weigh the same amount. Yeah, but the extra neutron is what makes it all the difference for the deuterium, and and deuterium is just it, it's amazing because it's you know it's it's not it's it's natural. It's it's all over the place. You can't avoid it. And in, in the body, I think has used has learned how to use it because the body traps the deuterium in the structured water. And even I think the deuterium supports the structured water, makes it easier to make structured water. So it's beneficial there. But if you can't make enough structured water, then the deuterium gets loose into every place else, and you can't maintain that low deuterium that you need in the mitochondria to get them to work properly. So you get mitochondrial dysfunction, and then you get all these different diseases. So walk us through again the process of how the structured water actually stores the deuterium. It's still a little confusing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really very simple because deuterium binds more strongly mm -hmm. than hydrogen and it's heavier. And okay. so it's less mobile. It's just, mm -hmm. if you think of a heavy, uh, well, you know, stuck uh, atom versus a, a more lighter and more- Sure, yeah, the bond. The bond. More, more easily to break through. So when you're losing one, you have to lose one. Uh, to make the structure work in the structured water. So you might as well lose a proton rather than a deuteron because it's harder to lose a deuteron. So on average, it doesn't 100%, but on average, it's going to no. kick out a lot more protons. There's a greater affinity for deuterium in the structured water. Exactly. Yes. And the same thing is true for hydrogen gas, by the way. You know, I know you like this hydrogen gas idea of getting... I don't like is a serious understatement. Oh, you love it, right? Yeah, it's my favorite. Excellent. I, I, would, I would tend to agree with you because it's so simple and it's not expensive, right? No, it's, it's it, it, as some supplements, as therapies go, it's relatively inexpensive. Yes. I mean, there's a cost to it, but its benefits, I think, is my, my absolute favorite supplement. But, but it, once, once you've, the, the structured water is storing the deuterium, what does it do with it? I mean, because all, it's toxic to the body. It's a poison. So it's, it's sequestering it there so that it doesn't get into the fluid yeah, water. What happens with it? How does it release it? How does it excrete it into the environment, back into the environment? Well, I do think there are um, that there's an ability of the sal salivary glands to favor deuterium uh, over um, okay. over protons, and so the, the sal salivary glands will secrete uh, preferentially secrete deuterium, and possibly the urine. Although I can't get enough data, hmm. there's not much data on the levels of deuterium, as far as I can tell. I've been digging, and I haven't found much on how much deuterium typically is. You know, I know breast milk has low deuterium relative to the blood, and the blood has low deuterium relative to the saliva, I believe that's true. So you see there's a pushing of the deuterium out into the saliva and then a, a attempt to keep the deuterium out of the breast milk, make so the breast you, milk have low deuterium. You got the deuterium in the saliva, you, uh, the assumption is you swallow the, swallow the saliva and the, then you excrete the deuterium in your stool. Yeah, the bacteria uh, accumulate in these biofilms that are very resistant to antibiotic treatments because they're hiding behind that shield. But I think they're trapping deuterium in that biofilm. So they're helping to deplete deuterium in the, in the host uh, environment. So now that we've got the, the background to sort of have a conceptual understanding of what's going on with the deuterium and the normal physiology, how does glyphosate enter this, into this part of the equation? Yeah, well, that's what's so fascinating. So I had already been aware that um, I had determined that glyphosate likely um, really messes up the flavoproteins. The flavoproteins are a large class of really important proteins that bind flavins. And flavins are FADFMN. So flavin, flavin adenine dinucleotide mm -hmm. and flavin mononucleotide, FMN and FAD. 
those are, uh, are really useful molecules that are, have a very fascinating biophysical skill of, um, of basically facilitating the transfer of protons and electrons from. Excuse me for a second. A flavin, isn't that a B vitamin? Is it B1, B2? Yes, it, it is. It comes from riboflavin. So B2. And then yeah, and nicotinamide would be yeah. B3. So they're both That's B3. NAD. They yeah. are both B vitamins. Right. And they are also uh, products of the chicken mate pathway. So there's a place where you're going to get deficiencies. No, wait, wait. How does chicken mate? I thought the chicken mate pathway produced the uh, aromatic amino acids. It, it does. But then when you look at more detail of how these other things are, are produced, you find out that they come from things like chorismate, which is also something that's internal to, the, um, to that pathway. So the B vitamins are uh, products of the shikimate pathway. NAD can actually be produced from tryptophan, and tryptophan is one of those aromatic amino acids. In fact, the liver makes NAD from tryptophan. Well, I've, I've done deep dives on, on NAD, and, and, and it certainly can. That, that is the endogenous production pathway, but, but it's a relatively small amount, and you need, you only, for every milligram of NAD you're producing, you need 70 milligrams of tryptophan. That's a pretty poor ratio. Oh, is that so right? A, wow, I didn't yeah, know that. It's a, it's a very tiny amount. It's, Virtually insignificant. Almost all of it is through the salvage pathway with NAMPT, okay. which is a limiting enzyme. So yeah, you, you need it. And now if you're tryptophan deficient, it's going to cause a problem. There's no question. And I think it's an important contribution, but it's relatively minor. Mm. You know, when you when you because I'm you know I'm kind of passionate about optimizing NAD levels. It's really an essential part of the equation to improve longevity. Right, uh, and but the other thing is not just NAD levels, but the ratio of, of uh, the NAD. H to the not H, you know? Because the yeah, NADPH wants to be a lot, you want to have a lot of NADPH and, yeah, uh, and not so much NAD. This is as important as NAD. They're both very important, but they have a, a different balance in the body. Like the NAD has much more of the NAD plus and the NADP has a lot more of the NADPH. Yes. So the ratios matter. The ratio of the pH to, the, to P plus and the ratio of the H to the H plus to the plus, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the enzymes that um, that produce NADPH from NADP plus are disrupted by glyphosate, and that's been shown in studies, and it makes sense because they bind flavins. I mean, there's all this. A critical one is succinate de dehydrogenase, and there's several papers that have shown that succinate dehydrogenase um, is uh, affected by glyphosate. And succinate dehydrogenase actually, it um, puts, uh, it takes, it has hydrogens from succinate and puts them into the membrane in mm. coenzyme Q10. That, and that, that enzyme succinate dehydrogenase is in the Krebs cycle? Exactly, it's critical in the Krebs cycle because it actually is also connected to the, um, to the electron transport chain. It does both, the citric acid cycle. And it's the only enzyme I think that plays both roles by stuffing those protons into um, the intermembrane space attached to cytochrome, I mean, attached to, um, Coenzyme Q10, ubiquinol. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, of course, ubiquinol is another one that people are taking a lot of supplements and that's the one that we're concerned about. And it, um, it gets supplied with deuterium depleted hydrogens from succinate dehydrogenase. Mm -hmm. So, and then glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase is another one that's been shown to be inhibited by glyphosate, um, binds NAD. So it's these proteins that bind NAD as a class, NADP, NAD, all, those things all have phosphates in them. And, and it's the phosphate binding that's key because that's EPSP synthase has phosphate binding as well. Isn't G6PD the enzyme that breaks down glucose to pyruvate, two molecules of pyruvate? No, I don't think so. Glucose six, uh, it's, uh, it's glucose phosphate that it starts with. 
Okay. Glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. So it pulls hydrogens out of glucose 6-phosphate. It turns NADP plus into NADPH. Mm -hmm. uh, it's active in the red blood cells. And it's uh, essential for restoring glutathione to its reduced state because the glutathione takes those H's off of NADPH to bring back oxidized glutathione to reduced glutathione, which is of course the antioxidant form. So when you can't make enough NADPH, uh, glutathione becomes oxidized and you can't, you, you don't have good antioxidant defenses in the liver. That makes sense, right? Oh, absolutely. And there, there are G6PD deficient people because of a, a, a genetic defect, which are just have horrible challenges. In my mind, it's almost as severe as type one diabetes. It's by far, it's the most uh, common uh, mutation. Yeah. G6PD has more different SNPs, SNPs than any other protein yeah. in the body. It's very commonly mutated. That's interesting too, because I think yeah. it's under stress. I kind of feel like enzymes under stress undergo more rapid evolution. The body's trying to find a solution that's going to work in the context of these poisons. And it makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, evolution is like that, right? Try this, try that. And lots of things don't work. And, and that's the largest path, uh, pathway to produce NADPH, right? I think so. I think that's the dominant one. And it also it depletes deuterium. So these, these, all of these uh, enzymes that are producing- well, pathway depletes deuterium? Well, so the, the tricky thing is, and this is biophysics, and it's so cool because uh, it's something called proton tunneling. Have you heard oh, of proton tunneling? I've heard of it, I'm, but I'm a little bit confused on actually. You know, it's, it's really, it's just so fascinating. And the FAD, the flavins play a critical role in that. And I think all these, you know, um, flavonoids and terpenoids and, and polyphenols that are so healthy, I think they also help to, to uh, facilitate um, proton tunneling, which is the trick that these enzymes use to make sure it's not deuterium. And it's just really, mm -hmm. really cool. And it basically involves water wires. So you have like, the protein has a hydrophobic hole inside it mm -hmm. that allows just a few water molecules, like maybe 12. And then the water molecules line up on a line and they're hooking two pieces of the protein together. And then the protein facilitates the release of a hydrogen on one end. Mm -hmm. And then the water molecules are all holding two hydrogens, right? Cause it's an oxygen holding, picture, picture somebody holding two footballs yeah. and a whole line of people holding two footballs. And then on the left end, uh, another football is handed into the system, right? Uh, so I'm holding two. I get one here. I hand my other one off, right? Mm -hmm. All down the line, they hand off one of their footballs. So the one that arrives at the other side is not the same as the one that came in. Yeah, totally okay. different one. But eventually, well, the hydrogen gets to the other side. And if I've got a heavy one and a light one, I send off the light one. So the, if there's any deuterium in there, it doesn't make it to the end of the line. So you end up with a very mm -hmm. pure proton assurance in the product. And if the product's water, you've got deuterium depleted water. Well, that's a very elegant description. Thank you for sharing that. That's and so cool. I was really blown away by that. And I think that's crucial also in the cytoskeleton. I'm, I'm theorizing that that's what goes on inside the cytoskeleton. When you push those protons in to the so cell, the, they travel through that football process. So this production of de deuterium depleted water in the G6PD pathway or the pentose phosphate pathway, is uh, where does it, what, what, what happens with the, how does it store this deuterium depleted water? Does it shuttle it somewhere? Or what, what happens? Well, so the G6PD actually produces NADPH. Okay. And oh, it's and that H. It's the H. It's the H that gets shuttled into the mitochondria. Eventually, it's the H. You have to follow the H's everywhere. It's so okay. cool. And like, for example, I just learned this. I was quite amazed. I found a paper just this morning. So this is sort of brand new stuff about these enzymes that uh, desaturate. So they're enzymes that turn... PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acids, into WUFA, or let's see, 
uh, mag, uh, say, what is it called? Uh, hufa, hi, highly, highly unsaturated fatty yeah. acids. Hufa into hufa. These enzymes are amazing because they actually end up taking an H off of NADH, and then they um, take an H, two H's off of the two H's off of the um, of the fatty acid, and two H's off of NADH to make uh, deuterium depleted water out of oxygen. So it takes two oxygen atoms, an oxygen molecule, breaks it apart, gives each of those oxygens two hydrogens. And two of them come from the fatty acid and two of them come from the NADH. Hmm. All of them are deuterium depleted already. And then the proton probably, the, the, the enzyme probably further makes sure that there's no deuterium. So by the time you're done, you've got a beautiful water molecule that is another product cool. that is ignored. I mean, so they just say, oh yeah, it produces, they don't even know, it. oh yeah, it produces water. I mean, that's just like, that's nothing, right? You don't pay attention to the water. You need to pay attention to the water that's being produced in these enzymes. That's what I'm realizing. The water is the important product. Yeah, because you could make a deuterium water out of that if you had a, if you had a deuterium isotope. Right, you could force it, but you know what happens is that it doesn't work. In fact, lipoxygenase is the one I'm really fascinated with because that is the by far the highest um, ratio. You talk, they talk about a KIE, kinetic uh, deuterium KIE, uh, kinetic something effect, <laughs> kinetic isotope effect, kinetic isotope effect, KIE. And okay. so if something has a high KIE for deuterium, that means that it very much favors protons over deuterons in its uh, product. Very good. And so you can look at the enzymes and find out which ones have you know, high ratios. And it turns out that lipoxygenase has by far the highest ability to select protons over deuterons of any protein I've ever found. Where, where is this enzyme found primarily? Is this so lipoxygenase is upregulated. It's expressed under conditions of stress. It's highly upregulated in COVID-19 infection when people have mm -hmm. a bad case of COVID-19. The virus actually triggers the um, increase in the production of lipoxygenase because the virus captures uh, linoleic acid in its uh, in pockets in its membrane. The virus has these holes that perfectly fit linoleic acid. So as it comes through the membrane, it picks up linoleic acid molecules, and then those the molecules get the SARS-CoV-2 virus picks it up. Yeah, COVID the SARS-CoV-2, and um, and then the linoleic acid uh, triggers this uh, with the inflammation that the virus induces. It triggers the release, uh, the production of lipoxygenase, which then modifies that linoleic acid into these leukotrienes that then have all kinds of signaling effects to bring in the you know, bring right. in the macrophages and cause all this, all the trouble. That whole cascade starts with lipoxygenase producing leukotrienes from linoleic acid. Yes, indeed. So. That's but it's also connection. producing water. It's producing deuterium depleted water. That's the cool thing about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ideally, yeah. That's wow. That's it's pretty fascinating. So, so now, where is this? Is lipoxygenase? Is this? Is it uh, intracellular? Is it? Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's. I'm not sure actually, and I would like okay, to know. It's uh, in the, the um, it may be in the ER. Okay. But I have to go check, actually. I don't know. I think all of these uh, organelles are deuterium depleted. So in other words, in, this, in mm -hmm. the cell, the cytoplasm actually has structured water and has deuterium. And then you have these organelles, the mitochondria, the liposomes, the uh, endoplasmic reticulum. Those, those are the main ones. And then I guess there's the, uh, the one that, um, <laughs> I forgot the name. <laughs> anyway, all these organelles, uh, the one that processes the fats, um, 
uh, peroxisome, the peroxisome, yeah. Peroxisome, endoplasmic particulate, mitochondria, and uh, this is giving me a, a quiz here, <laughs> and the uh, endoplasmic particulate and the lysosomes. All of them, I suspect, have deuterium depleted water, all of them. And they're constantly trying to make sure that they have low deuterium. And they do that with all these enzymes. It's so, it's so amazing. And I can, take, I can take all these different classes of molecules that are really important in health. You know, like the whole st uh, sterile classes, the cholesterol, the vitamin D, and all the, all the hormones, um, the sex hormones, all of those guys. That's one class. There's the class that comes out of the aromatic amino acids, which is all the neurotransmitters, you know, dopamine and serotonin, melatonin, the skin mm -hmm. tanning agent, melon. Those are all out of the aromatic class. Uh, the, uh, the fatty acids, you know, the whole synthesis of fatty acids, I think involves deuterium depletion. So all of these um, molecules that go through all these complicated steps yeah. are all focused on delivering deuterium depleted water to the mitochondria. I mean, it's an absolute obsession that the cell has. It's really central to metabolism. I'm pretty sure that it, the creation of the fatty acids requires NADPH. It might be. Oh, you're right. You're right. NADPH. But the thing One is, of the biggest consumers of NADPH is. It is. It absolutely is. Yes, that's mm -hmm. exactly right. But the NADH is involved in the specific um, enzymes that um, that turn uh, PUFA into HUFA. <laughs> These are already highly unsaturated fats, and the ones that even further desaturate them. Yeah. Uh, so those guys use NADH, but most of the, of the involvement of making fatty acids involves NADPH. You're right. And that H in both cases is deuterium depleted. The NADs are carrying around deuterium depleted hydrogens and passing them all around, ultimately give, live, delivering them. Well, that is fascinating. So you've, you've unraveled the primary mechanism, which is you've got to follow these intermediates like NADPH and NAD to, and the water to figure out where these, these deuterium, non-deuterium hydrogen atoms are floating around. So uh, that's, that's, the, that's the key. In that's the game. And it's, of course, I like puzzles and it's a really fun puzzle and it's sort of overwhelming to try to remember all the different enzymes and, and also where they're located. And you can see how in many cases, enzymes that are located in the cytoplasm are generating a, a, a deuterium depleted proton that can then be passed into the mitochondria. And then the, even you have to pass the substrate into the mitochondria too. It's kind of a real pain. You know, the, the body goes through contortions and people, you know, it's puzzling. Why do you have to do this in the mitochondria? Well, that's because this is delivering the mitochondria, the water, the deuterium-depleted water. So the things that are making the water are in the mitochondria and they're making deuterium-depleted water, which is what they need. I mean, some of them are outside like in the ER because the ER wants deuterium-depleted water too. And you can actually eventually transport it to the mitochondria. Yeah, and the, e the ER is not the emergency room. That's the endoplasmic room. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Wild stuff, and I mean the science is really, really complicated, and it's hard to keep track. And I'm still playing around with it. I still discover new things every day. I mean, I'm so um, yeah. enthralled by it all because it's but, you know it, it's a, it's a great journey because I'm I'm a firm believer. I love molecular biology and mm -hmm. it, the understanding the molecular biology at a deep level that allows you to figure out these these really important features of biology that contribute to health and disease. And you, right. if you don't understand molecular biology, you get confused real easily. So it's so, right. so, I'm so grateful for you applying your expertise to this and helping tease out some of the details. It's really important. Yeah. And, and, and what I would say too, is that the pharma seems to be, you know, they're hung up because they sort of see, oh, this is bad inflammation. This is causing damage. We need to find a drug that's going to suppress this. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. in fact, they offer, they, there was a paper yeah. that talked yeah. about uh, feed, uh, using as a nutrient supplement, 
um, fatty acids that had been intentionally populated with deuterium. Let's poison you to death. Yeah, and the logic was because this lipoxygenase won't work on oh, deuterium. Geez. So we'll prevent lipoxygenase from happening by just loading up deuterium in the membrane. <laughs> and good luck with That's that. Demonstration of, of uh, you know, basically solving the problem but killing the patient. Yeah, I think they look at everything all wrong. I mean, because I always, I always believe that whatever biology is doing it, it's doing it for a good reason. You know, yeah. I, I really believe in biology being smart, and there may be damage, but there's a good reason why you need that damage in order to survive long term. It's trying to fix a problem that's very serious, and that's what I think is happening with the, the virus, which is so fascinating because not only does it, as I told you, it has that, you know, the. Um, the, the virus induces this lipoxygenase, which produces this deuterium depleted water, and then it creates this inflammatory environment, which brings in the platelets and the mitochondria, I mean, the uh, macrophages, you know, the immune cells and the stem cells coming out. And all these guys are having a big party in there in all this fluid that's building up inside the lungs. And then meanwhile, it also increases the production of, um, of uh, hyaluronic acid. Mm -hmm. Hyaluronic acid is able to trap deuterium depleted water. It makes structured water. So you get structured water inside the alveoli of the lungs, and then you get fluid water in the interstitial spaces, and, and everything's coming out of, the, of the, the, the blood vessels are leaky, the capillaries are leaky, so everything's coming out of the capillaries into this interstitial space where there's this fluid water, and you've got this lipoxygenase making fluid water that's deuterium depleted. And so you're producing this environment of deuterium depleted water inviting the macrophages to come in and the platelets, you know, release their mitochondria. Each platelet has like five to eight mitochondria. There's a lot yeah. of plates. There's trillions of platelets. So there's tons of mitochondria. The platelets um, become activated, release their mitochondria. And the stem cells also come in and release their mitochondria. Yeah, and the macrophages they them into, Do they release them into the bloodstream? Into, in, no, into the interstitial space in the lungs where the, where the fluid is there and you can't breathe, you know, you're drowning. Well, that's it's, odd because you normally don't think of mitochondria as being extracellular. No, you don't. But that's what's super, super fascinating. I've only learned this recently. The mitochondria can, so the platelets, each platelet has a handful of mitochondria. And I think that maybe one of the most important things platelets do is hang on to mitochondria that they can deliver to the macrophages under conditions of stress. And so what happens is all these mitochondria get released in that interstitial space and the macrophages induce this uh, macropinocytosis, it's called, where they actually sweep up the water and everything that's in it and bring it inside the macrophage, including the mitochondria. So it's actually been shown that platelets can release mitochondria into the flu, into the environment, and macrophages can take them up and use them as perfectly functioning mitochondria. It's wow. astonishing, that astonishing. Amazing. So what they're doing is restoring the mitochondrial health mm -hmm. to the immune cells. The immune cells are, are sh shot to hell because glyphosate's been ruining them for a long time. I mean, if you're if you're an old person, you've been exposed to glyphosate for decades, right? And so um, the older you are, the more exposure you've had, on average. Mm -hmm. And the people who have all these comorbidities like obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure, increased risk, that those are symptoms of glyphosate poisoning. So I think it's mostly about glyphosate. I think if you've got, if you've had accumulated a lot of glyphosate in your tissues, you're not going to do well with COVID-19. And that's because the virus is trying to repair the mitochondria in the, in the immune cells so that the immune cells can actually clear the virus because the immune cells are helpless. If they can't make ATP, they can't, they can't do their job. No. And the virus flourishes. So I, I think 
I don't know if it's going to be very beneficial to continue go elaborating the mechanism much more because I think you've done a really phenomenal job. But I would like to summarize this stuff because it probably confused a lot of people. But if I could just summarize this saying this, you don't really, it's just intellectually satisfying to understand what's going on at a molecular biological level, which is why we're engaged in this discussion. But the, re, the truth and the reality is, it's just another confirmation of the importance of making sure you are not exposed to glyphosate because yet this is another newly appreciated mechanism of how it's been, it's avoiding glyphosate will benefit your health. I think that's the take home summaries. You just got to it's avoid glyphosate. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just so crucial. And it's, you know, I, I thank you for bearing the banner and I've certainly been a long time advocate of, of avoiding it, but you know, he sometimes gets lost, especially now with the pandemic and the focus on everything else. When we're looking at nutrients, and we kind of forget about the basics, which is glyphosate. You yeah. simply cannot have non-organic food if you ever hope to be healthy. Right. I mean, the smallest amount is going to be a problem. So, so that's my overall view. But I'm, I certainly want to have you summarize it and give us your specific recommendations. Right. Absolutely, organic food. I mean, we never if we won't buy it if we can't find a certified organic uh, any product that we shop at the grocery store. We always buy certified organic, and um, and we've seen really in health improvements because of it since we've started doing that. I really swear by it. And I try to get all my friends to do the same. I think we can really push the market too, because if people don't buy the food, they won't make it the toxic food. You know, they can't. Yeah. Well, I think it's as far as I understand it, haven't you, hasn't there been an increase in the, in the, in the purchase of organic foods? The, the increase in the purchase of organic foods has gone up exactly in step with the increase in autism. The, the uh, those guys like to make fun of that because of course, the organic food is still a very small percentage of the, of the population and organic is going up because people are aware that, that it's making them sick. And one of the things they're making them get is autism. So they say that shows that organic food causes autism. <laughs> so laughable. <laughs> mistake of causation does not. Uh, yeah, they're trying to show that causation, causation. is a correlation, no, no, no relationship. Oh, but, you know, glyphosate is correlated with these diseases with incredible uh, no. correlation coefficients with incredibly p-values that are several zeros before the first significant digit. Wow, that's a significant correlations. I don't see anything else like that. Nothing else. That's really a big reason why I think glyphosate is the cause, the primary cause. Obviously, other chemicals are not good, and there's plenty of them, and you have to worry about those too. But I think if you can eliminate glyphosate, you can really see a great improvements in your health, no matter what your problems are. And I just think that's so number one. I also like to promote sulfur-containing foods um, and um, uh, certified organic eggs, for example, eggs are really healthy and, um, uh, seafood. I'm on the eggs. i actually have 19 chickens now. I know. It's so fun with your yeah, chicken. And, and I'm doing experiments. No, maybe I, no, I have 18 chickens. Uh, but I'm doing experiment because most all chickens are given grains and grains oh. are loaded with linoleic acid, depending on which grain it is, but typically like 50%. So their eggs can have high linoleic acid because that's the primary fat that they're consuming. So I'm giving my, basically, my chickens are on a linoleic acid-free diet. Not, I mean, not free, but pretty low linoleic acid diet. I've got, I, put them on a, I put them on a stick of butter a day. I know, I think that's so great. I read about that in one of your articles. I was so amused. And I met your chickens too, you know, I, I met them, right? Because I was at your house. Oh yeah, you did, but yeah. I, the, my fruit has grown now. So yeah, I'm, that's I'm, so I'm, great. I'm raising a dozen from little, they were two days old. So that's pretty good to see them go through the whole transition. <laughs> that's really fun. You're going to do your own scientific experiment. Yeah, yeah. We're going to actually, how much, 
do an assay to find out what the linoleic yeah, acid is. Yeah, I'm a little looking forward to seeing how that works. About too much away from getting the results because yes, it takes that's... a while to, to clean it out of their system. You know, we've got yeah. LA, low LA diet for three to four months. Mm -hmm. So butter, of course, is a very good food, oh. not only because of that, but also because it's low deuterium. That's another thing you can look into with respect to choosing. Oh, I didn't realize that. Maybe butter is one of the lowest deuterium foods that you can find. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And what do you, do you know the reason for that? Well, I imagine, you know, it's coming from milk, right? And milk is low deuterium because the, the human actually produces breast milk that's low deuterium. So it's mm -hmm. probably uh, something similar there with the, with the um, cow. Mm. Um, it's, it's healthy for the, for the, uh, feed, for the uh, infant, <laughs> you know, the calf. <laughs> so that is interesting because that's yet another mechanism where a relatively high fat diet, healthy fat diet, obviously exactly. we want vegetable oil fat diet, could <laughs> be, be healthy because, even, you know, as opposed to a plant-based diet, which, you know, a lot of plants are pretty high in deuterium. I mean, that's one of the I things know. hardly anyone talks about that. And Literally, we could talk for another two to three hours of going right. in deep about deuterium, but you know th that we just gave you a taste of it, at least in this right. one one shadow, because there's a lot of information about deuterium. And I and I dove deep into that about a year, maybe eighteen months ago, but I kind of got disenchanted for reasons I won't discuss now. But, <laughs> but yeah, there's still something there. I'm just not sure how significant it is. Well, I don't think it's necessarily low deuterium. I think it's more, I think low deuterium is good actually because people who yeah, drink, yeah, of course. Water, I mean, you're not gonna argue people drink glacier water, like you look at the uh, yeah. Iceland, you know, places where people live a long time and are healthy, um, they get glacier water and that glacier water is, uh, is naturally low in deuterium. So that's, and the people market that too. And I think that's uh, interesting. Um, glacier water and then uh, animal fats. Those are sort of the two best yeah, sources. I think it's, of related, it's related to the latitude. So the higher the latitude, the closer to the mm -hmm. pole you are, and the higher the elevation, the lower the mm -hmm. So those are the two that are connected with it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And it has something to do with evaporation, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because evaporation not. repletes the protons, right? That's another thing with the hydrogen. You mentioned hydrogen gas, and I wanted to say that because hydrogen gas has very low deuterium because it's leaving the liquid phase and the deuterium being heavier and more and more better able to form bonds doesn't want to leave. So when you make hydrogen gas, it's very low. In fact, there's a paper that showed bacterial production of hydrogen gas, the enzyme that produced it. And they measured the, the deuterium level in the hydrogen gas, and it was only 20 parts per million instead of the usual 150 wow, parts. That's extraordinary low. Incredibly yeah. depleted in deuterium. So I suspect that that's a major benefit of hydrogen gas is the fact that it's deuterium depleted. Wow, that's another benefit too. Yeah. yeah it's interesting when you look at these things I, in different ways. I, I tried to hook up Tyler the Baron to Laszlo Boris, and boy, that was just a nightmare on steroids. It just degenerated. <laughs> quickly because he had, he had no respect for Tyler. He just didn't respect his, yeah. his understanding, his science, his knowledge base. And it just degenerated real quickly, which is sad. It's, yeah, both, Laszlo is very, um, he's very firm in his uh, opinions and very stubborn and uh, being, he's not receptive, I think, too. Yeah, yeah. it's not just easily. sad because, you know, science doesn't evolve that way. You need to be open-minded. And, uh, you know, of all the researchers i i personally know i mean you really are at the top man i mean you're just so open-minded and receptive and you're not stayed in your ways and, and you're open to new ideas and you you, you embrace them actually so that's yes. the ultimate scientist which is unfortunately a rare commodity most of them are just i know you know, teach, you know basically continuing to perpetuate what they've learned and, yes. and they, they don't have a, a microgram of innovation in their in any other. In a, in their 
I know what you mean. It's actually frustrating how how straightjacketed people are in the mainstream. They're very and they and they and they do research on what gets funded and what gets funded mm-hmm. is oh, it's broken. It's so broken in terms of what pharma wants, you know. Yeah. So and it's, we it's see sad. that that's part of the story of glyphosate too. All the brave research because Monsanto, as we've discussed in many interviews in the past, is has really cleverly funded the science departments of all most agriculture science departments of most of the major universities. And if you even dare to, to publish or, or investigate something that, that counters their narrative, you are you are defunded and maybe discredited. So any researcher exactly. that seeks to publish stuff on this is just essentially ostracized from the research community. They have to quit. They they cannot engage in the in the in the profession they trained in. They have to find a new job. Yes, and that's very intimidating. And I think most people are just not sufficiently strong to be willing to go against that to take on that task. And they would rather just let everybody get sick, which is what I find so frustrating. I can't stand the fact that we've got such a high rate of autism in this country and we need to fix it fast. If we don't, we're going to have a whole bunch of adult autistic people very soon with no place to go, you know? Well, I think, I don't think there's a way to avoid it. I think the path is already set. There's so many, so many. What are the current numbers as you understand them? The last I heard was like somewhere between one in 30 and one in 40 of the children being born now are have autism. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it may even be higher than that with the ones yeah. being born. There's a one in 54 uh, was a report on 12 year olds. But when you project it back to, to one, you know, it's going to be a lot higher. Yeah, so it's it's really frightening. It's just um, well, I don't I, understand why that's not total panic for the government. The government should yeah, be really obsessing on how do we fix this? And they don't I, seem to care at all. And that just infuriates me. I started seeing patients in 1985 and it was one in 10,000. I did not see an autistic patient for almost 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it was, you read about in textbooks, but you never saw one personally. And then my, then my office was inundated with them. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing them from all over the country. Um, and it was just so sad. And it's, and it's just gotten much worse because I stopped seeing patients, you know, pretty much this century. I mean, I've seen a, a few in the beginning of the century, but mostly it was the last century. I saw most of the people. You know, when they came out with this new number, one in 54, which was another increase over one in 59, which it was the previous time that came out, they came out with that number last April and there wasn't a peep about it anywhere. I mean, you couldn't really even hear about it unless you were actively looking for it. It was just not news. You know, oh yeah, of course, autism went up. That's, you know, that's not news anymore. Well, it got sequestered because the bigger concern I know. was COVID-19. So anything after, you know, March pretty much got buried. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, it's just incredible to me. And it's going to ruin our country, I feel, by the time, just the enormous resource that goes into taking care of these people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no question. I, I personally think EMF is a, is a factor. Yes, uh, I've been. Yeah, so a lot the, of my the, friends are talking about that, and I think you're probably right. Yeah. So, and, and, and there's probably a powerful synergistic toxicity with both of them, too, because you yes. know EMFs, EMFs are so convenient, and they're they're so the vast majority, virtually everyone, is resistant to even being open to the fact that they may be harmful because they don't they don't want to make, have to make a commitment to giving up this convenience. I know it's really mm-hmm. interesting how we've just slowly slipped to a point where we can't live without it. And because of that, we don't we won't, don't want to even think about the idea that it might be toxic, right? And it yeah. does the same thing glyphosate does. Both of them cause calcium uptake in the cells, which is causing neuron you know, toxicity to the neurons. So they both yeah. do that. So it's just going to be synergistic toxicity. Yeah, it increases just a simple mechanism. We have increased intracellular calcium concentrations. You get peroxy, not you get 
elevated uh, um, superoxide and mm-hmm. um, superoxide and nitric oxide, mm-hmm. and they combine wow. to form peroxy nitride, and that right. is to be the oxidative stressor that causes all the damage. So I, but so I know that's that's the speculative mechanism for EMS, but it, is it glyphosate? Glyphosate's a different mechanism, though, isn't it? Well, it's glyphosate a- definitely causes calcium uptake. There have been several studies that have shown really? that. I was not aware of that. I thought it, I thought it was mostly the sugar made pathway. And oh, well, it does so many things. I mean, when you when you mess around yeah. with glycine in the proteins, it's just in a million things. Well, I mean, the proteins too was another. I thought that that would have been more, but I didn't realize that cal. So is it does it increase the intracellular calcium concentration because because of the glycine integration into the well, the thought well, I I I think it may because I think that will mess up the uh, ability to take the um, glutamate out of the um, synapse. So there's it's a it's it's related to glutamate, and there's the NIMDA receptors. The NIMDA receptors have glycine and glutamate, and uh, glyphosate has been shown to cause excess glutamate external to the cells, ex- excess uh-huh. glutamate, and that stimulates the NIMDA receptors, which causes the calcium uptake. So it's really a glutamate problem, but. Um, uh-huh. I think glyphosate is actually taken up on glutamate transport channels as well. So the glycine might even be an analog of glutamate in the sense that it has a similar shape with a negative charge about the same size, but it also can bind to the glycine receptor. So it's really messing up the, um, the anemda receptors and causing uh, over stimulation. And then there's the other side of it is the glutamate is taken out of the synapse by the helper cells. Um, and then they, turn it into glutamine, which is non-toxic. Mm-hmm. And that enzyme is also disrupted by glyphosate. And part of that's because of the manganese. It depends on manganese and my, glyphosate makes manganese unavailable, but also that enzyme has glycine, severe, serious glycine dependency. So it could be substituting for glycine in that enzyme as you know. So there's a lot of ways it could be doing it. Uh, people observe that it is doing it and then they don't necessarily have the full explanation for why. But yeah. in many of these things, you know, like the G6PD, uh, suppression of G6PD and suppression of uh, succinate dehydrogenase I mentioned earlier, both of those have been observed. And both of those could be explained by this uh, by substituting for glycine at the place where it binds phosphate. That's the critical thing that I think is happening in all of these uh, proteins that have that critical dependency. There's a motif at the phosphate binding site that has three glycines out of six amino acids. And that motif is therefore very susceptible to glyphosate substitution, especially because glyphosate can slip its methylphosphonate unit into the place where the phosphate of the substrate is supposed to go. So glyphosate occupies the space and then the enzyme is just completely shot. It can't do its job. You know, while you were giving that wonderful explanation, it just occurred to me, I got confused earlier about G6PD being the enzyme responsible for breaking down glucose, but actually it's PDH, it's pyruvate dehydrogenase that does that. Yes. the, does glyphosate impact PDH at all? I suspect it does. And again, I think it's got those glycine dependencies. I mean, so I haven't found, I don't believe I've found a paper that says that it does. So I always look for papers that actually find that it suppresses things. Um, but I think it, it would be predicted to do so. I'd have to go back and refresh my memory, okay. but I believe that is one that it could affect. All right. So uh, this is an important question. I'm glad I remembered it because it, it, it's sort of a practical take home that's really simple and really inexpensive and I think could be really healthy. And I'm curious as to what your current insights and recommendations are. Uh, it all relates to glycine. Glycine can be taken therapeutically yes. as an inexpensive supplement. It's one I take every day about five to 10 grams. And yeah, it's, just what, it's easy to take because it's sweet. It's actually a sweetener. 
Uh, and so very, very, almost no calories to it. I, I probably less than one calorie for 10 grams. Wow. Uh, but, but uh, and it's not terribly expensive. You can get it as a powder and it'll sweeten anything you put it on. So I'm wondering, what is your current understanding of the value of that intervention specifically to mitigate the toxicity of glyphosate? I think it's probably a good idea. And I've had a number of people say that they're taking glycine without any ill effect and that they feel that it's helping them. And it makes sense because it's basically going to outnumber the glyphosate molecules, right? You want to, whenever the something's going to compete with glycine and building the protein, if there's a lot of glycine around, then it's much less likely that glyphosate will get in there. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay. So if you, for whatever reason, have to be consuming non-organic food that you may know is likely loaded with glyphosate and contaminated. Uh, uh, and, you know, organic, non-organic wheat would be a good example. It's not, it, the, the wheat itself isn't um, genetically modified, but they use it in the process to dry it out. So it's loaded with glyphosate. And if you're having that, then take that with some glycine. You're crazy yes. not to. Yes, I yeah. agree. All right, well, good. So I'm glad you, that's a, that's a simple take home. Yeah. Any other take-homes like that other than avoidance? And if whatever <laughs> you have to be exposed to it, then load up with some glycine. And what's your recommendation? Yeah, and also probiotics is important, I think. And that's also important for COVID-19. They've seen that vitamin K2 is uh, protective against COVID-19 and probiotics contain vitamin K2, um, menoquinol. Yeah, and so mm -hmm. uh, I encourage people to take uh, to eat probiotic foods like sauerkraut yeah. and apple cider vinegar. And, and um, a carnivore type diet will be real high in vitamin K2 too. And like butter. butter. Absolutely. Butter. Yes. That's a good point. Butter. You can't go wrong with butter. I tell oh, you. Oh man. Well, it should be organic. <laughs> oh, organic for sure. Absolutely. Rest and also butter. the glycine, by the way, the glycine supplement, make sure it's organic or else it's probably got glyphosate in it. Interesting. Boy, I didn't thought about that. And what, why, why is the glycine extracted from? Well, that's, I don't know, but I imagine they're make they may be getting some uh, corn or something. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to go and look, I, I find some of these things that are supplements are actually made through GMO technology. I don't know if you know that. I don't know what, how glycine is made, but often they, they met yeah, with but, the but yeast. There's a difference with GMO technology and glyphosate. I mean, typically glyphosate is associated with GMO because it's used, they use it on GMO plants. Right. And the, the right. reason they do is to use glyphosate, but just because as a GMO, like, like, no, no, what I'm saying is that they actually, what they do is they muck with the genome of, for example, yeast or E. coli mm -hmm. to get them to produce tons of something. Right. Yeah, and yeah, then they yeah. harvest that thing that they make tons of. Yeah, but that doesn't so, mean there's glyphosate in there because that's the way they make insulin. Well, if they're feeding them uh, uh, non-organic nutrients, they're going to put that gly glyphosate into the glycine that's yeah, extracted it, from it. It, was, it would seem to me to be a pretty small amount. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think it, I mean, you may be it, right. might be, it might be significant, insignificant, I would think. It would be it, interesting to test. <laughs> yeah, it's simple to test. I mean, the technology is not terribly expensive. We can use yeah. it. Yeah, so. right. That might be an interesting thing to do. Yeah, I don't know. And I haven't measured anything. So I can't say. It just seems to me that if you're if you're taking glyphosate, yeah, but, worry about but it's, it's important to differentiate between just because it's GMO doesn't mean it's contaminated with glyphosate. As I said, because that's the way they make insulin. No, no, I know, but I what I'm saying is that they then grow these bugs and feed them something, yeah. and often what they feed them has glyphosate in it. Yeah, well, we should check your insulin and see if it's got is contaminated with glyphosate. <laughs> It'd yeah. probably be worse injecting it than it would be eating it. I would think. I know. And in fact, there are problems with insulin. You know, people are developing um, antibodies against insulin and having problems, people who take insulin. It's interesting because there you, you would think that I, I, it, most of the insulin now is human, I would think. 
So well, it, they they do make this synthetic insulin that's not quite the same as a normal human insulin. And, really? And they also get insulin. They used to. I don't know if they still do, but they used to get insulin from animals, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It, and absolutely. then they learned how to make have, have the bugs make lots of insulin. So there's all these different ways to make insulin and different kinds of insulin. And and I know there's issues with um, antibodies developing uh, autoimmune disease because of insulin and becoming very sensitive to insulin, so you can't take it anymore. Yeah. And, that, different forms of it and probably taking the human insulin might be the safest, but. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's another story. example of the incredible crimes of the pharmaceutical industry that here they got a, a molecule that was developed in the, oh, literally a century ago. And when the, per, the inventor, I think it was Banting, uh, specifically decided not to make any money, he sold the patent mm. for a dollar. And now the drug companies have it. And literally, and I don't know, when I was practicing, it was pretty inexpensive. It was $10, $15, $20. It was really, now it's hundreds of dollars for a month's supply. That's really interesting. There, and there's no, there is absolutely no reason other than greed that has exploded. It's not like it's an mm -hmm. increased manufacturing cost or anything. They just want more money. And of course, the people who depend on it really critically depend yeah, on it. It's it not like something they just fine. That's a not take. Community. Yeah, that's really terrible. It's the same thing with the EpiPens, right? The EpiPens went way well, up. Yeah, that's another good, good example. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, EpiPens like for an accident, but I mean, if you don't get insulin, you're type 1 diabetic, you are dead. You are yeah. dead in other days. Right. That's really sad, isn't it? Yeah. That they make you. Fortunately, you know, the reality is that most of the insulin being used is for type 2 diabetics, which is another medical ignorance crime yes. that the, the, the physicians who do that should have their license reprimanded and go back to basics 101 to understand that type 2 diabetes is not an insulin deficiency that's <laughs> <laughs> a resistance yeah oh giving it's, more is going to make it worse it's silly it's it's silly amazing how far off pharma is from where they need to be i just am oh, so fascinated then, by their inability to choose the right path you know <laughs> yeah, well yeah for, for sure and then the, their clever marketing schemes to brainwash physicians to believe this and the ignorance of the physicians to not be open like you to explore why they're they don't have to believe this stuff and it's wrong and they're yeah. they're prematurely killing patients by by integrating this into their clinical practice right yeah all right well it's been a pleasure man it's always fun talking to you and i'm so looking forward to reading the draft of your new book and we'll definitely have you back on to go over that and we'll dive deep more into glyphosate and i can't wait to learn more of what you've compiled Great. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for having me again. So I really enjoyed it. All right. We'll look forward to the future.